Hey there, and welcome to Feel Like a Boss. We're so glad you could join us. Feel Like a Boss is a committee at DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Feel Like a Boss challenges negative perceptions of failure to help our audience develop growth mindsets. Our mission is to empower our audience to take risks, build resilience, and stay driven. Through this podcast, we will be interviewing multiple speakers who will share their stories of resilience through failures and challenges that were both internal and external to their control. By sharing these stories, we hope that we will learn from their lessons and the tools and tactics they've developed throughout the years so we may implement them in our own lives. Thank you so much for joining us and let's get to today's podcast. To introduce myself, my name is Miranda Damasaru. I'm a fifth year student at DeGroote studying marketing and sales, and I'm the founder of Fail Like a Boss. I'm also excited to have one of our team members um, co-host this podcast today. Her name is Sarah, and I'll let you I'll let her introduce herself. So hi everyone, I'm Sarah. So I'm the executive director of Fail Like a Boss. I'm a fifth year student at DeGroote. I'm focusing on accounting, minoring in economics. Um, so I'm excited to introduce our first speaker, who is very special to me, who I know as Uncle Norman, but you will know him as Norman Gray. Um, he has 35 years experience of executive management um, within the healthcare industry. He's also focused on the development of micro thermocouple probes for measuring tumor characteristics, characteristics in vivo during his doctoral work at MIT. Um, he founded his first R&D company in 1984, um, which would end up converting the Noble Probe IP into a commercial product, and spent the next 25 years growing that company, which he eventually sold in 2008. Um, currently, he is the CEO of Vanessa Research, which is a biomedical pharma company based in Hampton, Connecticut, and his most recent work includes formulating drugs for rare disease such as microvillus inclusion disease and the debilitating uh, diarrheal disease of cholera. So please welcome my uncle, Norman Gray. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> it's a pleasure being here. So did you want to start off with just giving us a little bit of your backstory and telling us uh, how you came to be? How I came to be? Um, <laughs> well, the, the backstory is I went to the United States for undergraduate studies after high school, went to the, the Pennsylvania State University, and having come up in the British system, our education was very, very different and in a lot of ways more advanced. So when I got to Penn State, I had opted out of several product uh, um, classes by taking credit by exams. And that got me to graduate in three years. But it also gave me a lot of free time. And my academic advisor was John Brighton, who was uh, an MIT graduate. And John Brighton was dealing with the artificial heart. He had one of the three artificial uh, hearts in the world. Lots of you will know that there was a Javits heart, and you may not know that there was also a Penn State heart. Those are now combined together, but I worked on the Penn State heart. I did an undergraduate uh, thesis on that by measuring the blood flow in the heart and looking at the coagulation in the heart at that time. So this was some exciting stuff for me. I originally came to the United States to study aeronautical engineering and all of a sudden pivoted from aeronautical engineering because of John Brighton into biomedical engineering. I then went on to do my doctoral work uh, in Massachusetts, and um, I focused on uh, measuring accurately what happens at tissue level when you add heat 
from whether it be ultrasound or microwaves to a tumor. And we were able to, for the first time, measure, actually see a cell, how it fires with oxygen. And when it fires with oxygen, it's an endothermic, exothermic reaction. And therefore, you can measure that heat. So that was the start around uh, that particular project. But you could not just feed yourself with one project at a time. So we... We were we started to embrace and write grants for many other projects, and that led us to several other near products. Uh, we did work on the artificial heart valve, and that came up with materials that were not latex. There were no materials at the time that fit the profile of the material that we needed for the artificial heart valve. So we had to make our own, and that became the subject of two patents for me. And that just grew. Over the years, we brought these products to market, and from time to time, we would then purchase companies, and 25 years later, we became an overnight success. So that's, that's really what the journey up until that point. I retired for about 18 months and it drove me nuts. And so I got a call from a colleague at Yale University in um, New Haven, Connecticut and said they're looking for faculty and staff. And, and so within a week, I came out of retirement and went to Yale. Uh, that was in 2010. From there, uh, my Connecticut journey started to what it is today. We did research uh, primarily in the areas of cancer. And with that, we uh, made a huge discovery of what happens at the brush border of cells. And that led to us discovering uh, the, uh, the formulation to not cure, but to treat microvillus inclusion disease. And that is a debilitating pediatric disease. Uh, the kids die in four days. If they're diagnosed, uh, they're put on an IV 24-7 for life. And that in itself is a death sentence uh, because the kids, the, the total life they will live is about three years. Um, so we have a treatment now that actually takes the kids off an IV and allow the kids to go home and to live a normal life. So it's almost like a diabetes treatment. And um, subsequent to that, we changed the formula in small bits. And now we are the only company that have the formulation to neutralize cholera. And we can do, we have several other drugs in the pipeline that goes all the way from Crohn's disease to traveler's diarrhea. So that's the journey. That was a really interesting story. And I just had, there must have been incredible pressure for for your team and organization to to keep that going. So I was wondering how how you you dealt with that pressure and how how that how that worked for your team and yourself. I guess the question is what part of the journey? The new journey or the old journey? What stuck out to me was for, for the young patients, you were mentioning that they could um, die from the disease and you were trying to come up with a, a solution for it. Okay. So I, I think maybe the story of how, how we came to it would answer that. So my work, my life work has been in the area of cancer and trying to understand the mechanism and particularly the mechanism at the brush border. So why does a cancer cell grow? You know, a cancer cell is, is your own body cell. And like every other cell, it eats food, it passes waste, and in the middle, it copulates and multiplies. Mm -hmm. That's what we do as human beings. We eat 
we pass waste, we copulate, and we multiply. So the, trying to understand that mechanism of why uh, it is very different in the body and why is it a rogue cell, what we call a rogue cell. I had a PhD student in Spain at um, the University of Barcelona. His task was to come up with a model, a mouse model, that we could use to replicate this um, and, and then do investigations on it. And over a period of time, it failed. When it came time for him to present his PhD, he didn't have any data. And so the kid was crying, and we all decided that we were going to go in and look and see what the problem was. And lo and behold, because we did not give up, we went back to the details of it. We put a camera in the mouse cage to look at the mouse when she was giving birth to her pups. And we recognized that there was blood left on after she gave birth, which is not normal. And when we looked at the cameras, we saw that she would eat the defective pup. And when we went in and rescued the next litter and res rescued that pup, lo and behold, this pup had a missing gene, which was the missing myosin 5 gene, which was the subject of his PhD work. So that work, along with another student of mine at Yale, who was working on the brush border with the missing myosin 5, those two works came together and we understood why myosin 5 was causing, the missing myosin 5 was causing the problem. And so because we did not give up, because we went to detail, we looked at the detail, we were able to make the tie-in. And by fortune, we came up on why these kids were having difficulty with something called microvillus inclusion disease. So these kids, they, they have diarrhea. They, they, it's, they cannot eat anything. And the only way to feed them is with an IV. You know, it's the, the, the question is, how did we motivate? We didn't really have to motivate anybody, not for these kids. When you see the kids that we are treating, it is your heart will just, you know, it, it's hard not to cry because they're born. They never leave the hospital. The hospital is home. And so uh, motivating us to move forward. Uh, going from cancer and being fortunate enough to be recognizing that we had the formulation now to actually treat this disease was is um, was motivation enough. And the entire team, we either have grandkids or we have young kids. So everybody understood that. I hope that answered the question. Absolutely. I guess my question was not necessarily about motivation, and I can see it, even through your voice and, and passion about the subject that it, it's really something that, that was really important to you. What about when your students came to you and they failed, as you mentioned, what, what, what really helped them push through that hard moment of their of their PhD failure, would you say it's, from my understanding, it was a community effort that might have helped. But when when a, when a student is in that mindset of like having gone through that failure, how do you how do you help them push past that moment? You know, part of part of this when Sarah brought this to me was to challenge the word fail. But then I went along with it. But you you walked right into into it for me. So I'm gonna tell you, you never fail until you give up. Yeah. And so for us, when the 
when this kid was crying because he had put three hard years into it and he had nothing, nothing. All the work, when you looked at it, everything should have worked. He had nothing, no results. Now, let me back that up. You know, when you guys do a, master, a bachelor's degree, you're not doing anything new. All you're doing is learning exactly what everybody else did. When you do a master's degree, they should be teaching you how to think, the sequence of thinking. But your master's thesis does not have to be positive. It can be negative. With the PhD thesis, what they're saying is, we've brought you with the bachelor's degree up to date. We have now taught you how to think at the master's level. So at the PhD, go think. So it's got to be positive. Your results cannot be negative. For us, I like the terminology used. It was a community. We rallied around him. Nobody started to point fingers. And the first thing we started to say is, if you're willing to give up, you will fail. But if you're willing to work it through, we're all going to work with you together. And there is no failure. Let us see. And you go back to the details. So often when people run into hurdles, the first reaction is, it's too hard. I'm going to turn around. I'll change the topic. I'll go somewhere else. Or you will have the naysayers amongst you. You know, you have that stupid uncle that goes, ah, you will never get it. Don't, don't waste your time anymore. Go get a job. You'll make a lot of money. And this is where people, a lot of people will turn around. But for us, when we walked in and said, that's no, no problem. This is life. We'll pivot. Let's figure a way to pivot. Where should we pivot? And once that decision was made as a team, as a community, then we could all look at the, the details. And, you know, discovering the blood was by chance. It was, it was one person in the entire team that went into the cage and we put a diaper down the night before because we can predict when they're going to give birth. Mice are very, very predictable. And they give birth between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. So we would put this white diaper down. And it was just a slight red on that diaper that one person in the entire team said, what's that? That led to what we're doing today. So... Teamwork, standing with people, not being alone. So if this person had done what others would have done and just walked away and just given up, then they would have failed. But the first thing they did was share it. They weren't, they weren't ashamed. Yes, he cried. Yes, he was disappointed. But he was not ashamed to say, I did not get my results. What do I do? That's a really excellent point. So, and I really wanted to point out what you mentioned about putting your ego aside and admitting that you failed. And to bring it to to an example that I I know is I watch Shark Tank and um, Dragon's Den a lot of the times, and there are oftentimes entrepreneurs that come on and all the shark, their, their business is essentially failing, but they refuse to admit that they're, that they're failing. And, and in that way, 
by refusing to admit that you're failing, it seems like you're you're only blocking yourself off more because you you don't give yourself the opportunity to pivot if need be. Okay, you're. I agree. <laughs> Um, Sarah, did you have any questions um, or anything you'd like to add on? Um, well, I'm just curious. So you had your experience with teaching, and I've honestly heard some really good stories. So what was the main reason for you to decide maybe to give teaching a go? And what was maybe one of your highlights or possibly downsides of teaching and even going into research as well? I, I don't know if I ever got into teaching. I think I was always a teacher. So I'm dyslexic. And being dyslexic, one needs to understand or break everything down into very, very simple terms. So, you know, even with all the, the work that I've done um, in medicine and in engineering, I, I still cannot pronounce certain words very well. You know, I struggle. But I understand the concept. Because I'm able to break those things down into very, very elementary, understandable blocks. And if I understand the elements, then, then the rest is easy for me. I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. <laughs> Back in high school, I had one of, the, to me, the best math teacher that there was. Everybody would memorize what is the sign of 60 degrees? What is the sign of 30 degrees? What is the sign or cosine of 45 degrees? And being dyslexic, you know, going into an exam, uh, a, a British-based exam called A-levels or O-levels, that's hard. And what what he did is he said, Norm, you don't ever have to memorize what the sine of 60 or cosine of 60 or is. The only thing you have to know is an isosceles triangle. And you drop a perpendicular from one of the apex, and you get a right angle, you get a 60, 30, and a 90 degree. If it's all the sides are the same, you label each one two, two, two. When you drop, you drop the perpendicular, you split the base so you get two and one. One side is one, one side is two. And the cosine, for example, is the adjacent over the hypotenuse. So the cosine of 60 is a half. Bada bing. Something as simple as that, by understanding that concept, makes it easy for me to teach. And every time I made that discovery, I would share that with somebody. Hey, did you guys see this? You know, if you drop the perpendicular down, you never have to remember it, what it is. It comes up natural. And it is... That's how I started to teach. And I was actually teaching at my high school with physics. I taught while I was at high school. I taught at another school. And it just continued. When I got to university, I was always in that role of being either an assistant to the professor or something. And, I, I, and it helped me because... For me to understand enough to explain it, I learned from it and it cemented my knowledge as a dyslexic child. So teaching was not only me sharing, but also beneficial to me as I learned the topic. And I've always taught. I've always taught, and to this day, I'm still teaching. Another question. So 
who or what do you think was maybe the biggest thing in teaching you to be resilient or to keep pushing yourself? In high school, a Jesuit physics teacher, he realized that I was bored. He did. And he said, you're going to be a troublemaker. And (laughs) I've got to keep you busy. So he pulled me from class. Because for some reason, a dyslexic child, I read physics like other people read comic books. It was easy. It came easy to me. And so he pulled me out. And he had me pivot from being a student to his assistant. So at high school, I didn't go to class. I was behind either setting up experiments, marking grades, and I started at quizzes, marking quizzes. Well, I started homework and then quizzes, and then I started marking exams as the trust developed. That was huge for me because it built my confidence for a dyslexic child in a world of, you know, back in those days, they didn't call it bullying, but it was bullying. If you didn't see everything and get everything right the first time, you were stupid. And other kids were not afraid to tell you how stupid you were. And this, this, this priest turned me around by recognizing that I was different and it was okay. So I have a question as well related to your dyslexia. So that's, that's obviously something that's very external to your control and you've, you've managed to find a way to cope with it. And my question is if a student approached you with a problem that was external to their control or a challenge that was external to their control, would you treat it any differently than one that was internal or like something that they could, they did have the ability to, to change, for example, or how would you approach the situations differently based on something that's internal versus external to your control? When, when one is presented with an issue that you have the ability to control and make changes, That's when I invoke something called, you have to be able to accept somebody telling you when your baby is ugly. (laughs) However, and, and, and if you can accept somebody saying to you, your baby is but, but ugly, and then move on to figure a way how to make the baby beautiful. How we're gonna, how we're gonna make this baby pretty. Then that's okay. But in a circumstance where you have no control over it, then the recommendation is to figure a way how to manage it. Because you can't change. I can't change my dyslexia. But what I can do is manage it. And you manage it first by not giving up. By the world is outside is going to say to you, you're stupid, you're slow, you write things awkward. That's what the world is going to say. You're going to get teased. And so the first reaction is to internalize, to hide it. So if a student comes to me with with that type of thing on there, you know, with that external issue that they have no control, the first thing is not to hide it. Because even though there are those people out there who are going to ridicule you and bully you they're also those good people who are going to turn around and empathize with you and help you so you're always looking for the help and you will never get the help if you hide it
So disclosure, honestly, always go out and be humble. Because of my dyslexia, uh, the languages are very difficult. So you go to France, and the French, they, they hate Americans because Americans refuse to speak French. And French is a beautiful language. But if you go to France and you just try, you get in the taxi cab and you try, guess what? The goodness of the French people just oozes out. Because even though you pronounce the word wrong, they're there to help you. They're smiling with you. They're teasing you in a positive way. No, don't say it this way. This is how, and this is how we do it. This is, I had an uncle who said it this way and it was okay. And it goes for any country, any language that you go to. So if you have that thing that you cannot control from outside, open up first. Be humble about it. And you will find people will be there to help you. And then we learn how to manage it. You have to figure out how severe it is, the degree of severity, and then manage it. We're humans. We can manage anything. We may never be able to get over it. I still, to this day, I'm very careful. I know how to manage it, but I will flip work, flip letters. And had we not have spell check, I would have had in my early days, I always had somebody who would proof everything I, I wrote so that going out, it would not look bad. Now I have spell check. I hope that answered. That definitely, that definitely really did answer my question. And, and I think, I feel a lot of us have learned a lot from that. Another question I had, I know Sarah mentioned that you, you host case competitions or entrepreneurial competitions. And I was wondering, based on your experience with that, what, what are some key characteristics of that makes an, a great entrepreneur? And what are things that people should really strive for in, in becoming a great entrepreneur? and dealing with all of the emotions and everything that comes with entrepreneurship. I don't host that. What, what I do is, you know, we, you kids are all fortunate and I don't know how many are listening out, but I would assume that most of you are very, very fortunate. You have parents that are very supportive and so forth, but there's a whole population of people that never have the experience to be an entrepreneur. You know, to be an entrepreneur, the, the lady that sells the flower on the side of the street, she's an entrepreneur. Now you think of how many people never get to experience that because of their socioeconomic situation. So what, what we do is we have a program called Entrepreneur Leadership Academy. And every summer, we pick kids from the high school that come from disadvantaged homes where they would never have that opportunity. And we pull them in and we, we teach them. We give them this crash course in being an entrepreneur. And at the end of it, we do a project. We pick projects. We put the people on team. And at the end of it, we do a full uh, pitch to four investors so that they get the idea of what it is to do formal entrepreneurship. That course teaches a few things. Number one, there is no entrepreneurship gene. So none of us are born entrepreneurs. And if anybody tells you that rubbish, you direct them to me and I will challenge them. 
you have my telephone number, you have my email, I will challenge them. None of us are born entrepreneurs. But you can learn to be an entrepreneur. So that's the first. Secondly, the most important thing is recognizing that you have to listen. A lot of people love to talk. Well, you got to shut up and listen. Because, you know, if you have an idea, you already know the idea is the best thing since sliced bread. But if you're not willing to listen to somebody tell you where your baby is ugly, then you won't know where the idea sucks or where the idea falls short, or how that idea will fit into an area of to, to become viable, financially viable and become successful. So the idea itself is great, but that's just the beginning. How do you turn that idea into something that somebody will want, somebody will pay hard-earned money for? And the way to do that, the beginning point of that is, is to listen. So in our course that we teach, you will see we have several points along the way. We, we do something called a nine steps. And in several points along the way, it is always going out to what we call a focus group, where you give the idea to somebody and you listen, to shut up and listen to what they're telling. And sometimes it's, it's not good advice, but often if you listen carefully, there is something there that if you listen, you can pivot, you can, you can make a change. Uh, so number one, nobody is born with an entrepreneurship gene. And number two, the most important element of becoming successful as an entrepreneur is a scooter. Listen. Uh, Uncle Norman, we had a question from Ankur. Uh, he's wondering, what's your take on this? What's the difference between procrastinating because you're afraid to fail or because you're just simply unmotivated? If you're afraid to fail, then you're, you're going to be doing exactly what everybody else wants you to. You might as well go work as a bank teller. Bank tellers never fail. And I, I'm, I'm not being disparaging to bank tellers. Don't get me wrong. That's not the point. But a bank teller goes in in the morning. You move the money from here to here. You know exactly if somebody gives you $10, and you know you you um, it's going to cost six. You know exactly how much to give and change. So that is very structured. If you're afraid to fail, then you will never start anything new. But if you procrastinate because you're just lazy, you're unmotivated. That's a whole nother psychological problem. Why, you know, it, it means you're lost for me. So I have students who come in, they come from very good families, they have everything and they have no clue what they want to do. If you, if you know what you want to do, if you know where you want to go in life, then that motivation goes away and you'll pick something and you'll do it. So there, there are two very, very different situations. Uh, one may feel that they can't fail because of how they grew up. They may have seen a parent try, 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 and just not make it. And they don't want to go into that situation. They don't want to have 
to lose the house or to go hungry or to have their kids go hungry or not go to college. That may be, you know, the, 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 the reason for the fear. But if you let that fear control you, you'll never do anything new. The procrastination bit, you got to figure out what you want to do in life. And once you figure that out, then you then you'll do it. I hope that answers the question. That's I'm not a psychologist, but that's that those are my thoughts on it. I actually had two follow-up questions on that. So one um I'll start with the first one. When if someone's afraid to fail, what would your advice be to overcome that fear and steps or actions that they can take to overcome that fear? And um, I'll, I'll ask the second question after. Okay, so if you're afraid, so being afraid is a learned behavior. It's something that in your, in your journey that is triggering that fear. It could be you've seen mom or dad try something and always not being able to to be successful at it. it. It is probably something in your history that has caused a lot of pain. And you're worried about that pain. Because you, pain is hard. You know, to, to be evicted from your home, to be hungry, to watch your parents struggle. Those are, those are hard, painful as a kid. So if it's a fear issue, you have to be honest with yourself. In the quiet of your room, you have to ask yourself the question, what is causing this fear? And, and you will hear people say, I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to have to work three jobs and still not make all the ends meet. I don't want that. So I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a good job. And it's not going to be an entrepreneur job. It's just going to be a bank teller job. I'm going to go in nine to five. I'm going to make my money, go home, be with my family. I'm going to work one job. You have to figure where, where that fear is coming from in your journey and be open to it. And then manage it. There are ways to manage that fear and the ways to manage it to become an entrepreneur is to say to yourself, okay, fine. I'm not going to make the same mistakes that my dad did. Let's see what was dad doing that wasn't right. Well, dad was going out and buying flowers for $10 and then he would sell it for $20. But then instead of taking out $10 out of the 20 to buy new flowers, what he did is he spent the entire 20 buying a washing machine for mom. So he didn't have enough money to reinvest and get new inventory. I'm just giving you a, a hypothetical. So by looking at what happened, why those things happen you can manage your fear so you can then say okay fine i'm not going to make that same mistake that mom or dad or somebody else that is triggering that fear did and you learn to manage it fear is something that is learned and as long as it is a learned behavior we can manage it Thank you. So definitely trying to find the root cause of your problem or, well, your fear and then even the root cause of any problem. I'm, I'm sensing a theme here of finding the root of every situation that's occurring. My second question was regarding the motivation aspect. You mentioned that if you, if you're feeling, pro, if you're procrastinating a lot and, and feeling unmotivated, then maybe you're not on the right path. 
Now, my question is also, a lot of us experience, we find that motivation comes and goes. And my question is, when when is it time to figure out what new path we should take? It's a question of whether we're on the wrong path or whether it's a question of we need to become and remain disciplined to keep going. So when it's not fun, For me, with my dyslexia, as I made things simple and I shared it with people to see the light in their eyes, uh, things just light up. That goes, wow, I did that. So if you're on a pathway and things aren't fun, you're not enjoying it, it, it's time to to step back. A lot of kids today, a lot of people today, they're chasing the money. And when you chase the money, you do things that you really don't enjoy. You're not, it's no fun. And if you chase the money, it's going to be hard. But when you do something that you really enjoy, you can't wait to get up in the morning to do it. The money will follow. Trust me. The money will come. So if you're going down a path and you're not motivated, it means that you're not having fun. Whatever you're doing is not motivating you to... You're not enjoying yourself, and you need to you need to step back and say, "Wait a minute, what am I doing? I, I'm 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 doing this business course. I hate the the business course. I, what I really love is I love horticulture. I love farming. I love to feel the earth in my hands." I'm just using an example. And that's, you've got to be true to yourself. There is nobody, no psychologist, no mom, no dad, no friend, no best friend that's going to help you. You have to sit in the quiet of your room and look in the mirror and say, self, what makes you happy? And if what you're doing really is a struggle, then you need to change. That's the time to change. What you said reminds me a lot of Simon Sinek and finding your your why and your and your drive to like stay forward. And you're you're not doing something that's fulfilling you. Sarah, I, I don't know if you have any further questions you want to want to ask. Maybe one last final question from my end is how would you encourage somebody who might not be as confident but wants to be an entrepreneur in terms of like doing pitches and everything like that? How would you encourage them or motivate them to build their confidence or find a way to build their confidence to lead up to pitching to people or investors or whatever? I, I think I'm the worst person to ask that because I still don't like doing pitches. I don't like asking for the raise. I don't like asking for the money. But you have to. If you have a project that you really enjoy, then you make up your mind to be stupid. So... Sarah, you know, you've seen me on stage. I call the classroom my stage. And I am the stupidest teacher there is. I I make everything humorous. And if you make everything humorous, then if you make a mistake, hey, I was just making a joke. And I have come over the years to master that. Uh, I get up on stage in every class and I'm silly. 
That's how I deal with it. And it works. It works for this reason. Because when I fall down, because I'm not being bombastic, I'm not being arrogant. If I fall, everybody is rushing to lift me up. So I guess the answer to that question is, if you don't have the confidence, start with humility. And trust that the world, in this world, there are those people that are going to put you down. They're going to bully you. They're going to make fun of you. But trust that equally in the world, are good people. As grandmother, I wouldn't be here today without Sarah's grandmother um, being there for me. And it started her grandfather, you know, the entire family. And every step along the way, there was someone there that kind of reached out and pulled you up. John Brighton at Penn State. Uh, Professor Lelly at MIT, Dr. Green, founder of Texas Instrument, Dr. Olson, founder of Digital Equipment. All of these people along the pathway. And it all started with me saying, me just playing stupid. So I am, I am not, my kids will tell you one of the things we have when we're going on vacation and we're driving and we're lost. I'm not one of those guys that go, we're gonna, we're gonna find it, help, you know, no matter what happens. I'm one of those who pulls over and says, okay guys, it's time to play stupid. Because every time I play stupid, somebody steps up to help me. And more importantly, I learn something. But when you, when you, when you take the other approach, when you internalize it, nobody's, nobody knows how to help. Or if you play arrogant. So a lot of people, they play arrogant in order to hide behind a deficiency. I love being stupid. I think also just to finish wrapping up, we have one person uh, that's listening now that has a couple of questions for you, Uncle Norman. Hey, uh, I just want to, I just had more questions about like your journey. So it all started in uh, undergrad or graduate and you were building something for, to treat cancer patients and then you create a business out of it. Is that, is that true? Yes. So not undergraduate at the graduate level at the undergraduate level i pivoted from aeronautical engineering to biomedicine and that's by uh, working on the artificial heart but for my graduate work what i did is we measured um, using engineering principles we measured um, temperature uh, blood perfusion and oxygen synthesis at tissue very accurately. And so we were able to characterize how fast the tumor was going to grow and what it took to kill the tumor if we were going to use heat to, to cook it. So that became the, the first product and my first patent. So then we built from there. But that took 10 years to come to market. So in between the 10 years, I had a kid that liked to eat more than dirt. So I had to get other projects coming along that would get to revenue before the big one. Now, the big one was great. You know, each piece of equipment sold for a million bucks, one instrument. But until you got there you needed to build the smaller businesses. Okay. 
So, so were you expecting to build a business while you were doing your research or did that just happen or did that just happen? I was too stupid. It just happened. I, I just went along with, with life. You guys have the better. In fact, you know, now you guys have something called entrepreneur, uh, classes in entrepreneurship. Number one, I still can't spell the word, but back in my days, we didn't have that in school. We didn't have a course called entrepreneurship. So, you know, back then, and in fact, I didn't know that I was an entrepreneur until a couple of years ago. Somebody says, hey, you're an entrepreneur. Okay. I, I just kind of did it. And that's what happened in the old days. We, we did not have it formalized. You kids today have the, the luxury of a formal learning. We can teach you the steps that we went through to get to become successful. So, so was this the graduate program that gave you the opportunity to do these, this research? Was, is that how it started? Yes. So the graduate, so at, at grad school, my advisor, that's what he was working on. He was, he was using ultrasound to treat tumors. And so in the mix, one of the question is how much ultrasound do you use to kill the tumor? And can you, can you define it? Uh, because the, the more you understand how, how the tumor is being killed, then you're able to define the instrumentation that, that you would do. So yes, he had a big grant and that, um, as a grad student that gave the opportunity. And, uh, what's the best way to, to work on a project with the professor, like to get on their good side? It's not to get on the good side. For me, Dr. Brighton at, at my undergraduate school, he came from MIT. And so when, the, when it was time for me to start looking to graduate and do a graduate program, he was my reference. He said, you got to go. And to Dr. Lele, he said, you got to speak to this kid. And, you know, I went up. I met Professor Lele, and the rest is history. He said, come. So it's really making that connection with the professor that, number one, you're competent. And number two, I mean, if you go in pompous, and then nobody's going to really want you on the team. But if you are humble, again, if you're humble and you go in politely, and you show your competence. You have to be competent. People will take a chance on you. And don't be afraid to ask. Ask the question. My, um, why I kind of relate to this is um, I'm actually in engineering. Originally, I did want to do more like biomedical. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What type of engineer are you? I'm in electrical right now. That's not engineering. <laughs> There's only one engineer, mechanical engineer. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's, that's fake engineering. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, like, so I want to do, like, biomedical, so, like, do more, like, robotics, so, like, I can help, like, disabled kids, essentially. So it's kind of what my motivation was, but especially in the recent, like, years or a year, uh, like, I just feel like there might be a chance that it not, might not work out. And just because, like, I'm getting older, you know, like, I'm trying to plan, like, when I'm trying to get married, when I'm trying to have kids, when I'm trying to do everything, I just feel like right now I'm trying to take, like, the safe road and just do what my dad does, which is just more like business. That's why I kind of asked the question if it's, cause I don't know if it's like, I'm afraid to fail. That's why I'm not giving my hundred percent in like biomedical, but I don't really know what to do type of thing. So I would, I would say this and, and I don't mean it. I don't mean it just figuratively. So my first question is, are you, are you ready to hear where the baby's ugly? Are you prepared yeah, yeah. for me to tell you where the baby's ugly? Yeah, yeah, I am. You are? Yeah. You sure? 100%. It's going to be hard. 
Yeah. Stop chasing the money, son. You're chasing the money in more ways than one. And when I say you're chasing the money, you're worried about you're worried about the family. How are you going to support the family? How are you going to in in you're planning here all the way down. Get through today. Do do what you enjoy in your heart. The money is going to come. Trust me. But if you chase the money, you're going to be continually struggling to chase the money. The money comes if you do what you enjoy. And if you enjoy, if it motivates you to think about that you may come up with an electromagnetic device that could help a child that is born without a limb. Wow. Wow. Number one, any any partner that you choose would be stupid not to think here is somebody that is that is doing something for the world, not for himself. So number one, you're going to get a good partner. Number two, you know, if if you do it and you do it right, you signature your work with excellence. You're you're going to be successful. The money will come because the impact that you will make on that child's life is until the death of that child. You think about it. You think about what if you can give the child an ability to hug somebody else. By putting their arms around and pulling them in and feeling the warmth of another body, a communal thing. Wow. If you were able to give a child the ability to write so that they can function in a world where everybody writes. Wow. Wow. And if that doesn't motivate you, man, then nothing will. Stop chasing the money, son. Stop chasing the money. The money will take care of itself. You kids today, you're great. You're going to do. And when's the best time to, in quotation, fail? Now. Why? You're young. An old guy like me, I can't afford to fail because where am I going to get the next job? But you guys... You've got your life ahead of you. If if you do something and it doesn't work out, you pivot. We're always pivoting. Yeah, no, thank you for that. It means a lot, actually. Yeah. Thank you so much for 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 joining us and asking that question. I got really hit home with I think a lot of us. So we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. We learned so much about finding your reason as to why you're doing something and staying driven towards that. Thank you for teaching us the importance of having a community that really, really believes in you and really helps you move forward. And at the same time, in order to attain that community, to remain humble and, and have that humility to ask for help when need be. We really appreciate your time with us today. And I think a lot of us will 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 spend the rest of hopefully the rest of our lives thinking about what you've said and what you've taught us. Thank you again. Uh, if you have any concluding statements you would like to say, I'd the, the only thing I'd like to say is you know you guys are all very fortunate. You're multi-talented. Every one of you today, you're living uh, talented people. And sometimes too talented, too many things are available to you. And um, I, I, uh, I, I echo again, be humble. Do not be afraid to, to, to play stupid. Don't be afraid, man. When you play stupid, you learn. And people fall over themselves to help you.
there are good people in this world. And finally, if any one of you, anybody that is listening to the podcast, um, Sarah has my contact details. If you guys just want to talk or mentor, I'm here. Uh, I would not be here if many people didn't stop and help me. And I'm here for all of you. So if you have questions, you just want to take it offline and just talk about something, reach out to Sarah and she'll, she'll put you in touch with me.